Well, good morning, GFC, and welcome to everyone here, especially welcome to our visitors. Um, my name is Warren Wright, as you heard. I'm a leader here at GFC, and I'm uh, a permanent resident, or my legal status is that I'm a resident alien. So I'm your resident alien here. Um, anyway, I'm privileged to open up God's Word with you today. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity, and I hope you'll be blessed. One extra announcement that we need is about childcare. There is childcare available behind that wall. Take a couple left out the door, you'll find it. Welcome to keep your children here. We're happy to have them. But if you'd like to make use of that, it is available. And there's a mother, mother's and baby's room over there if you would like to use that too. So normally I start off on a light, on a light note and tell something funny. But today we're doing Ecclesiastes. Okay. Have you ever been seriously disappointed? Now I'm not talking about being disappointed that your coffee wasn't hot enough or the traffic light delayed you for a minute or other little things. I'm talking about, about being seriously disappointed. Like when you've been working or hoping for something for years and it fails. Or when your best efforts turn out to be utterly useless. Let me give you an example from my life. I used to play piano a lot. I started when I was about six years old, and for the next ten years, I probably spent about a thousand hours in front of a piano, maybe even two thousand. For me, there was no continual assessment, just one big terrifying exam every year or so. I passed a few of the easy ones, and then I stepped up my game. I practiced even harder to work for a, a harder exam. And the momentous day came, and I did my best despite crushing nerves. In fact, my teacher listened from outside the exam hall and said I did okay. The results came in, and I had failed. Despite my best efforts and years of work, I failed. I haven't seriously played piano since. Oh, I've dabbled here and there. Now I console myself with the fact that, yeah, I'll get to it again when I'm older, maybe. And I learned many good lessons along the way. And these are true. They're true. But the fact remains that I deprived myself of nearly 2,000 hours of fun in order to gain a skill that I have since lost. Hours of doing the same scales over and over again, and now I can't even remember them. My efforts only gained me a temporary skill. It didn't last. There are many other examples, and most of them are far more serious. Perhaps yours is a, a failed relationship, maybe even divorce. Or disastrous financial life decisions, and now you struggle to pay the bills. Or maybe your struggle isn't because of something you did. Maybe you are the victim. But there you are, stuck holding the pieces of a life that doesn't quite seem to fit together. Or how about the death of a loved one, friends, family, parents who've passed away, or the crushed hopes of a miscarriage, maybe more than one. Nobody is immune. Everybody will be seriously disappointed in life. Everyone will suffer futility and waste. And how are we supposed to be happy people in the midst of all this frustration? How are we supposed to look at the futility we experience in life and still smile. Where is the joy? This is why I've titled today's sermon, Joy in the Midst of Vanity. But how do you get it? The book of Ecclesiastes has an answer for you. In this book, we will see how to stare at futility and frustration without flinching and still enjoy life. 
But let me give you a warning here. As Christians, we know that the answer is Jesus. Okay? This is a glorious fact and the source of our comfort. But let's not jump to the answer too quickly without understanding the question. Because in order to fully appreciate the answer, we must investigate the problem deeply. This is why we'll only get to Jesus at the end of the sermon. We'll spend the bulk of our time talking about the vanity of life, the futility, because after all, that's what the bulk of Ecclesiastes is about. Let me give you some context of today's sermon in the life of our church. Last week we finished our sermon series on church principles, and this week we start a new book, Ecclesiastes, which is on page 355 if you have one of the church Bibles. And my job today <coughs> is to give you an overview of the whole book and to expound chapter 1 in light of that. But before we get to that, let's pray. Father God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for even hard words like Ecclesiastes, which talk about um, how broken this world is. But, uh, but Lord, thank you that there's a message of joy at the end of it. Uh, and help us to get there, Lord. And I thank you, Jesus, that we have Jesus who is not vain, and we can point to him and, and hope for joy. Help my audience, help this congregation, help me to have ears that will listen to your word, that you will open our hearts, that your word might impact us deeply and we'll be changed into your image. Thank you, Father God, for your spirit, through whom all of this is possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, which is on page 355. Go one of these. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then I'll give you an overview of the book, in, which will include some of chapter 1, and then I'll come back to chapter 1 in great detail. All right. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity are vanities, says the preacher. Vanity are vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What has been done, sorry, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, I, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, 
And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Pretty heavy stuff, eh? Let's step away from the details for a moment. Ecclesiastes is a research document. It contains a problem statement with example cases. It contains a solution with fleshed out examples and implications of the solution. It even has a refutation of alternative solutions. And it also discusses the qualifications of the principal investigator, the PI. So who is the PI? Who wrote it? Did you see it in verse 1? King Solomon, David's son, wrote it. Most likely from Jerusalem for the people of Israel. It's difficult to date, but Solomon reigned somewhere between 970 and 930 BC. Okay? So why did he write it? And now we get to the good stuff, and we're also on point one of the outline. We're going to look at a general reason and a particular reason. In general, the author tells us in chapter 12, and I'll let me quote a verse, verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. In a book dealing with the vanity of life, the preacher wants to teach truly delightful knowledge, words that will gladden and gratify you. So why did the preacher write this book? To bring you delight, to bring you joy. That's the general reason. So look for the particular reason. In chapter 1, verse 3, we just read it. The preacher asks, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let me repeat that. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here we see the point of the research, and it's stated up front like any good research article. This is the preacher's problem statement. I want to highlight two things. It's gain from toil and under the sun. We'll come back to these later, but for now I want to highlight that the context of this book is about what we can achieve with our human efforts here on earth. That's the context. Okay? Now we've got the problem statement. I promised you a, a solution or his findings. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has one answer to the question of what does a man gain by the toilet which he toils under the sun? That answer is actually right up front in verse 2. Did you see it there? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is vanity. So I've mentioned vanity a few times. Uh, let me define it for you. Right. Empty, unsatisfying, vexing, futile, useless, pointless, worthless, and fruitless. The preacher has written this, has written this book to prove to you that everything you work for here on earth is vain. All is vanity. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? It's so shocking that some have tried to get around it. Some have interpreted this to mean that it's only vain if you're a sinner, but for the saved, and this doesn't apply. And others have interpreted this as some guy who's given himself over to despair, and this book is here as an example of what not to do. But both of these interpretations not only undermine the authority of Scripture, but they also completely miss what's going on. The shock value doesn't stop with everything being vain. Let me give you the second finding. In light of all this vanity, the preacher says this in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. He says, I perceived, after all the vanity, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. 
Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, I told you you wrote this book for your delight. But doesn't this sound crazy? Okay, so everything we do is pointless, so just enjoy what we can. Is this just escapist madness? Or is this the only sane response when we open our eyes and see how very little we can actually accomplish with our own efforts? Did you hear the phrase, nothing better? Let me assure you that in a book that is page after page of showing you how vain everything is, the phrase, nothing better, stands out like a lightning strike. Quite shocking indeed. In the midst of inescapable vanity, the best thing for you to do is to find joy. This idea is repeated quite often, actually. But it's just about always linked to the phrase, this is the gift of God. The only way to find joy in the midst of vanity is if God gives it to you. Because nothing you do can ever earn you anything else but vanity. We've just had a look at two aspects of this research document that the preacher, King Solomon, wrote. First was the problem statement, which was, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the second are his results, of which there were two. And the first was, all is vanity. And the second was, the best gain you can have is joy. And that is God's gift. So what can be gained under the sun that is not vain? Nothing except joy. And that is the gift of God. Let's turn to chapter 1 in a bit more detail and see what he means by vanity. Let me quickly remind you again of the context. This is about what you can gain from your toil. Not what you can achieve with God. No, just you. And it is limited to defining existence under the sun. We're not talking about heavenly realities. And we're also not talking about the dead. We're only talking about the living. All right, let's get back to chapter 1 and see what he means. In fact, right up front, the preacher is going to give us four reasons why all is vanity. He'll give more later, but these are the four big ones that make it into his executive summary at the front. I've summarized them for you on your outline so you can trace them as we go through. Number one, in verses four to eight, we see that the preacher is telling us about endless cycles of nature. His summary of this observation is given in verse eight. All things are full of weariness and that satisfaction is unattainable. So here we have the first of the four reasons why all is vanity. Life is all about unsatisfying, endless repetition. If you cut your grass or mow the lawn, as we would say in South Africa, you'll need to do it again next week, maybe. Let's just take a look at what happens in a typical week. Every day you put on clothes in the morning and then take them off in the evening to put on other clothes, to take them off a few hours later to put on other clothes. Wake up, go to work, come home, repeat for five days, and each day you need to brush your teeth twice, shower, cook, eat. And at the end of that, it's time to mow the lawn, go to church and start it again. And again. And again. And again. Life is all about unsatisfying, endless repetition. Let's move to the second reason why all is vanity. In verses 9 and 10, the preacher boldly says, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing you do is actually novel. Even the greatest, most world-changing discoveries are just that. They are discoveries of something that was already there. It's been true since creation. No amount of human effort will ever truly produce anything 
new. This is the second reason why the only gain from your toil here under the sun is vanity. It's because nothing is new. So I'm studying to get my PhD in physics. I'm researching to produce something that is of benefit to the field of knowledge. My goal is to produce something new. This is not unique to academia. Think of artists, musicians, computer programmers. And it's true that on some level, we come up with stuff that is new, but at best, it's just a discovery of potential or something that was already there in creation, something old, because nothing is new. But the consolation prize is that many people will think things are new, but only because they forgot the last time it happened. <laughs> and that's actually the next vanity on the list. Right? Have a look in verse 11. The preacher says that nobody will remember you or what you did or didn't do. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. The third reason why all human effort on earth is futile is because nothing is remembered. There's a common quote about history, and it's this. The only lesson we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. One of my ancestors was a famous explorer, kind of a Lewis and Clark of South Africa. But, you know, even a few generations, I can't even remember his name. He was a big deal. But now his descendants can barely even remember him. Many people dream that their life will have meaning if only they can accomplish something big enough to be remembered, to make your mark. But this is a fool's hope because given enough time, the preacher assures us that nothing is remembered. Let's move on to the last of the four vanities he mentions here. There's one underlying truth behind the other three, actually. It's that we all die. The only end to the repetition is death when we leave being under the sun. And the only reason why you would ever even want to be remembered is because you left. We have no permanence. My piano playing skills were not permanent, even with all the effort I put into them. And even if I did keep them honed my whole life, when I die, my skills die with me. You came naked into the world and you will not be able to take anything with you when you leave. So the fourth reason why life on earth is burdened by vanity is because nothing is permanent. You cannot make an eternally lasting difference here on earth by your own efforts. All right, let me summarize these four vanities. Life on earth is all about unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember, nothing you do will last, and at the end you die. <laughs> let me say that again, slower this time. Life on earth... It's all about unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember. Nothing you do will last, and at the end, you die. This is all you can achieve on earth with your best efforts. The rest of chapter 1 tells us two main things. The first of which is it gives us some more qualifications of our author, our principal investigator. He's Solomon, David's son, and he's a preacher and a king. He used diligence and he had unsurpassed wisdom and understanding and knowledge. I think this is here because after such a bold, shocking start, we need to be reminded that these are not the ravings of a depressed lunatic. No, these are the diligent conclusions of the very best and very wisest researcher who had a limitless budget. The second answer to the question, sorry, the second thing about chapter 1 that we should learn 
is basically an answer to the question of how did it get this way and can it be fixed? Because I don't like this. And we're now on point two of the outline. So who's responsible for this mess? If you look at the end there, it says it's God. Now, Solomon is not saying that God is the author of evil. In chapter 7, he very clearly states that it's man who messed things up early on. But yet God is sovereign. He sustains this vain existence. He keeps the world turning. Okay? All right, so it's vain, it's messed up. Can I fix it? The answer is no. You can't fix it. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Your best attempts at fixing it are as vain as everything else. And so life on earth is all about unsatisfying endless repetition of old things that nobody will remember, nothing you do will last, and at the end you die, and you can't fix it. I started the sermon by telling you that this was meant to show you joy. I told you the preacher intended to write words of delight. So how do you go from looking at how futile, how futile everything is, to being delightful and joyful? Well, let me remind you, that after all this consideration, Solomon comes to the conclusion that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Solomon's conclusion is that everything is vain, so enjoy life. But I mentioned that sounded crazy because it doesn't, it doesn't sound possible, right? Because we enjoy things that have meaning, that have some sort of success, some profit to them. So how do you enjoy something empty? The answer is this. It's that little end piece. It's the gift of God. In chapter 2, Solomon writes that apart from God, there is no joy to be had. But to those that please God, he gives joy. So let me make this crystal clear. Nothing you can do on earth will be truly satisfying or joyful in and of itself. Any enjoyment you get out of anything here on earth is because God gave it to you, not because you earned it by your efforts. You are completely dependent on God to give you joy. And God primarily gives joy to those that please Him. So the obvious question is, how do I please God? Right? If I want joy, how do I please God? Because this can work, right? If I figure a way out how to please God, then He'll give me joy, and then this vain life won't be so much of a problem, because I'll be enjoying it. Well, the answer to this is related to one last theme that I really need to draw out of Ecclesiastes for you. That's the theme of fearing God. Right at the end of the book, Solomon summarizes his theme well. In chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So why should you fear God and keep his commandments? Well, there's an implicit link between the idea of we want joy and we can only get it from God if we please him. So let's respect and obey God in order to please him so we can have joy. But Solomon never actually says this because he understands that we are not actually any good at pleasing God. And since nothing short of perfect obedience will please Him, you're pretty much stuck at the position where you can't please God by your efforts. So let me summarize everything we've got through so far. The preacher has asked the question, what can I accomplish through my efforts? And the answer is nothing but vanity. There are two implications. Number one, the best thing to do in this vain life is to enjoy it. But the only way to enjoy it is if God gives you joy, and he only gives joy to those who please him. So the second implication is my duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. And this would please God if you were able to do it, but you can't. And so you're back to a life of unsatisfying, endless repetition of old things that no one will remember, nothing you do will last, and at the end you die. And you can't fix it. And so your best bet is to enjoy it, but you can't because you can't please God. (laughs) 
So how does the scriptural truth sound to your ears? Right? Is this shocking? Are you sitting there full of arguments why this can't possibly be true? Not for those who laughed, obviously. <laughs> Let me first say that I understand this is a hard truth. In seriousness, Solomon, at the end of the book, uses the words goad and nail to describe this truth. These truths are designed to unpleasantly poke you into realizing the truth. That's what Solomon thinks of these truths. And you know, these truths are not easy to accept. But, you know, you can live deluded or you can wake up. Let me list two reasons why we commonly find that these truths are hard to bear. Two reasons why they're tough. The first one is, surely the Bible says that if you work hard, then, you know, you can get results. Yes, but the rewards for our labor are never tied to our efforts. It's only Jesus who actually earned anything of true value. We only ever earned wrath. And the second objection is perhaps, but we can work for eternal treasures, can't we? Yes, but remember, this book is about what happens on earth. And furthermore, any treasures that we actually get in eternity are gifts from the one who really earned them. We never earned anything of eternal value, or at least nothing we would actually want. There's another reason, sorry, these reasons have one thing in common. And that is, they greatly exaggerate what we can actually accomplish by our own efforts. We all too often think too highly of ourselves. When I was a kid, and my vocabulary was growing, English was something I was learning, of course, there came a point when I was about nine or ten years old that I thought I knew all the words in the English language. In fact, I told one of my teachers that I had English figured out, I had learned all the words. And then I found a dictionary. <laughs> and I'm still learning new words to this day. You know, we are like a kid who thinks he knows everything and can do anything, when really, our best efforts just end in vanity. So we just talked about finding the truth shocking, but what happens if you don't find the shocking? What happens if this is exactly what you've come to believe about life? Well, well done. You've correctly observed the facts of life. It's depressing. But let me give you this warning. This is not the end of the story. If you stop now, you're only dealing with some of the facts. And thus your conclusions will be faulty. There is good news. So now we're on point three of your outline. What is this good news? Remember I said that if you could just keep God's commandments perfectly, then you could please Him and you could enjoy life. And then I said you couldn't do it, so you're stuck. But there's another solution. What happens if someone obeyed perfectly on your behalf? What, if, what happens if someone pleased God for you? The good news is that this is exactly what Jesus has done for you. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, came down to earth. He left heaven where everything is meaningful and nothing is vain. He came down to earth and suffered vanity with us. He came down under the sun and felt futility. But the difference between Solomon and Jesus is Solomon looks at this and despondently says, who can fix it? No one. Jesus can stand there and say, I can. Jesus made the crooked things straight by doing two things. Firstly, he died suffering God's just wrath to pay for all of our failings. And secondly, he lived a perfect life of obedience on our, on our behalf. The reason we can expect joy in this vain life is because Jesus earned it by perfect obedience. And he gives joy to those who follow him. And to those who follow him, they act like him. 
And so they fear God and obey his commandments in imperfect but sincere imitation. In this vain life, the best thing to do is, is to enjoy life. But joy is the gift of God to those that please him. And so Jesus pleased God for me. Jesus is how I get the gift of joy from God. So what should you do with this understanding of joy in the midst of vanity? There are many applications. and I'm just going to look at two and then we'll be done for the day. The first is, abandon your vain, unsatisfying dreams. I'm not saying you should never want anything because everything is vain. No, enjoy life, dream dreams, make goals. What I'm talking about is meaning of life stuff, your top priorities. If your big defining life goals are things like, I want to escape repetition, say the rat race, or I want to find meaningful relationship where I'll be remembered, or I want to make my mark on this world, make a difference. If these are what define you, then you are chasing after vanity. I'm an academic. And as you can imagine, earning the Nobel Prize is probably the best thing that can happen to a physicist. But even if I get it, I will still need to research after that. Inescapable repetition. Nobody will remember in a hundred or a thousand years. And I didn't actually create anything new. I just discovered it. God should get the real prize. And my Nobel Prize will mean about as much to me as a paperweight when I'm dead. But if my goal is primarily Jesus and secondarily my research, then my primary goal is about the one who only needed to save me once, no repetition. He will be remembered for all eternity. He cannot die. He's God after all. And he actually made new things. He has made all things new. And then my secondary goal on, on earth, Jesus can make me enjoy my path to the Nobel Prize if I get it. If I don't get it, I still enjoyed myself. And if I do get it, I can actually enjoy the prize. Without him, I can't. Nobody else can in inject joy into my life. My primary goal of Jesus makes my secondary goal work. I'm still going to work hard because you can't work when you're dead. And if God makes me enjoy it, why wouldn't I? Don't chase vain dreams. Seek God first. Fear him. Keep his commandments. But mostly and primarily depend on and believe in Jesus. God will add all these other things. The second application is enjoy life. Lighten up. We take ourselves too seriously sometimes. For example, are you easy to offend? Perhaps you're taking yourself too seriously if any little thing can set you off. The next time you break a glass or overcook something or say something wrong, if your hope is in never breaking things or being a great chef or, or skilled with words, then these mistakes will make you mad and you're probably taking yourself too seriously. Another example is this. Do you count your blessings? Enjoy your material wealth. Enjoy your friends and family, the weather, work, what you eat, what you drink. But most importantly, be joyful because of what Jesus has done for you. Meditate on his sacrifice. This is your greatest comfort in a vain world. There is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I think that when we realize how vain things actually are, then we don't feel like we need to do everything and create meaning everywhere. This realization might feel like a great burden has lifted off your shoulders. The relief 
might even make you happy. In summary, our efforts at life are exceedingly vain and futile. So the best response is, in, is to enjoy the ride. So lighten up and count your blessings. But remember, only Jesus can give you true joy. So depend on him and imitate him because Jesus is the only source of joy in the midst of vanity. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you.